Good evening. Okay, that's uh, terrible, but we're going to let it go. Okay, we're going to let that one go. Um, hey, we're grateful to have you guys, and uh, it's not very often at, at Stone Point that we do something that we call is a standalone message. Uh, typically, we're either working through uh, a book uh, of the Bible, and we're working expositionally through it verse by verse, or maybe we do a series, uh, something like Leave a Legacy or the Heaven series we just completed. Uh, we typically work around a topic and try to dive into it biblically and give you several different uh, perspectives. But tonight, we're actually going to just dive into a place, and uh, it's very obscure. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I don't think anybody... Uh, would have probably picked this text if they had something to talk about uh, on their own. So if like, we brought in a guest pastor, I don't think anybody's going to pick this text, okay? Uh, and to be very honest with you, I really don't know exactly what it is that the Lord wants to say to us through this text, although I do believe that we all need to hear it. And uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, this is... a, a a rather, rather important chapter in our Bible, but oftentimes you and I would read through it and not give a whole lot of thought to it. We would probably, uh, ha if you're on your Bible reading plan, you've probably already passed 2 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, as Mark's over here shaking his head as he's doing the Bible in a year, he's already passed it, and he never came to the office and goes, hey, you would not believe what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, he just read through it, and, and uh he just was never really taken by it, you know, never probably wrote any questions in his Bible or anything like that, you know what I'm saying? I uh, just read it, okay? But to, tonight, I hope that as we read through this, that you see something spectacular. Because what you're about to, to see is that of this text, there are many other texts in your Bible that come as a result of it. Uh, matter of fact, I just read earlier Psalm 132. And Psalm 132 actually comes from this text. Uh, there is a, another um, Psalm, Psalm 68, a very lengthy psalm uh, written by David that comes as a result of this text and of this circumstance of what happens here. Uh, 1 Chronicles 15 is a result of what happens here. It's a picture of what happens here. And so you see several different things, but uh, let me kind of give you the setup, okay? Uh, everybody here has probably heard at one time of a guy named King David, okay? If you haven't uh, heard of a guy named King David, King David is probably, not probably, is definitely regarded as the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, they had many kings, but he was definitely the standard of which all kings would have to meet. Like we have a standard uh, according to the way we should live, and it's not our neighbor, it's not our friend. Our standard is what? Jesus Christ. And well, the kingly standard in the nation of Israel was a guy named David, and it was a result of what happens in this passage is why he becomes that standard. But the thing is, is this, David, when he actually takes the, the partial throne of Israel, he becomes the king of Judah at about age 30, and then he becomes the full-fledged king of Israel after their civil war, the two sides unite, north and south, and he becomes the presiding king over all the nation of Israel, which is actually what the Lord wanted for him uh, when he was about 15, when he was called. If you remember, uh, you, you see a guy named Samuel goes and... Uh, he goes to this guy named Jesse, and he begins to look uh, throughout a, a, what, a group of 
boys, and he comes uh, to the sons of Jesse. Uh, this little runt, the guy who uh, becomes King David, is not even among the brothers. He is not the studly-looking type. He's the run of the litter, so to say. He's out shepherding the flocks. And finally, after going through all the sons, he looks up and he says, Jesse, where is the last son? You've got to have one more because the Lord has instructed that the king is not here. And he goes, yeah, well, I've got one, but I wouldn't have ever thought that it would be him. And that's why we know um, that just as David apparently is of no comely appearance is the exact same that Isaiah said of Jesus, of no comely appearance, that uh, he is the prototype uh, of the true antitype of Jesus. And the cool thing is, is that uh, he was about 15 when he is told that he's going to be king. He waits 15 years. He sees all types of different things that happen, uh, not, even, not only things in his life, but things that happen to him as a result of Saul, the king of Israel at that time. And uh, even David, wasn't he the guy who was the hero uh, that took down the ultimate villain of Goliath, uh, approached Goliath, and got, Goliath said, what, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? In 1 Samuel 17, he goes, who are you, little dude? Like, what, what do you think you're going to do here? And he is the hero for the nation of Israel, but ultimately he becomes kind of forgotten about for a period of about 15 years, takes over uh, the, king, uh, the kingship, the throne of Judah, ultimately to be on that throne for about seven years. And at 37, he takes the throne. And that's when you come to 2 uh, Samuel chapter 6. And look what, <clears throat> look what it says. David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And basically, if you guys remember, we had an Act Like Men conference in November. And basically what David does is he summons all the men of Israel and he says, it's time for us to have a meeting. It's time for us to get very serious about a few things in the life of our nation. And he brings them together, and then he does something significant that the nation has never, ever seen in his lifetime. He's 37, and they've never seen this happen. And this is what he does. He and all his men went to Bela and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And he says, we're going to go get the ark, and we're going to bring it back, and we're going to put it in the place that I have prepared for it. Now, what's interesting is, is that it takes literally a period of about 22 years for him to take the throne. And then after he takes the throne, literally things begin to happen that he could never have expected. One, the, the Ark of the Covenant has been kind of uh, out in, in no man's land. Uh, it's actually uh, at Kareth-Jerim uh, at a guy named Abedinab's house. And that's where it's been. And it's been there for a period of probably... 20 plus, 30 plus years, uh, but they haven't seen the ark in Israel in 50 to 70 years. Like they haven't, it's just been out there in no man's land. The kings haven't uh, had any part of it. Uh, the really, it was not used much during the period of the judges. I mean, it's literally has been a very, very, very forgotten about thing. And David says, it's time to bring the ark of the covenant back. And so what you see in 2 Samuel um, starting literally in you know chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up to 6. I mean, you see all these things that begin to happen. Uh, you see uh, the kings of the, the, the north, uh, Abner. Uh, you have another guy um, that's uh, Ishbosheth. They die. They're actually both killed and assassinated. 
the people there, they tremble because they're afraid of what's going to happen. They actually go to David and they say, hey, we want to become the nation of Israel with you. We, we know that God's hand is on you. And all this time, he's been waiting to what? Be put on the throne as the full king of Israel. All these things happen. I mean, literally almost feels like overnight. I mean, very quick span. He's waited 22 years for all this and then it just kind of speeds up. Then not only that, there's the people of Philistine and they actually inhabit the nation and the, uh, the part of Jerusalem. And guess what? God says, go get it. And they go and they wipe out the Philistines. And so not only has he become a king, they've become a nation. And now they have a place in which they reside as a capital. And all this has happened really in a very short uh, span of time. And David is now here and he goes, now it's time to get some things in order. And the very first thing to do is what? To go get the Ark of the Covenant. And the reason why is the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's dwelling place among his people. The Ark of the Covenant is the very thing that's set in the most holy place. It's the very thing that's made of a high wood, okay, and, uh, or a kaya wood. Uh, and it's made of Achaia wood, and Achaia is uh, it's very strong. It outlives people. It's durable, okay? And it actually grows in the, in the dead of the desert. I mean, it doesn't, it can be, it takes scorching heat. It, it just lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. And the reason why is because it is a picture and a symbol of who God is. And he takes this and he uses it among his people. And in the Ark of the Covenant is what? The word of the Lord. It is the tablets of stone. It is the place in which God dwells. On top of it, it is the mercy seat of God. In order for God to have forgiveness poured out, there had to be what? Blood that was poured over the mercy seat of God. And that was when God would find favor on the people of Israel after a goat or a lamb was slaughtered on the behalf of the people. And that was all in the presence of what? This one thing called the Ark of the Covenant. What's interesting is that the Ark of the Covenant has not been seen in our Bible since uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. That's how long. Like we're almost a whole book into it and you haven't seen any mention. So like that's a question that Mark, as he's reading, I'm going to pick on him all night. As he's reading, he should have asked, where in the world has the Ark of the Covenant gone? Where is it? And it's, it literally is, it's being taken care of, but it has no precedence in the life of in the nation of Israel. It has no precedence among the people. And they should be going, why do we not have the Ark of the Covenant? And the problem is, is the Ark of the Covenant was actually at one point taken hostage by the Philistines. And the Philistines take it and they say, hey, we're actually going to make it our God. And so they go and they place it among their God. And guess what? They come into the temple. Uh, of Dagon, uh, their God, and uh, Dagon the next morning is face down at the altar of the covenant of the ark, the ark of the covenant. And they put him back in his rightful place, and the next day they come back in the morning, and guess what? Dagon is again face down before the ark of the covenant. His arms and his legs are broken off, and there's nothing but his body there. And they decide at that point in time that we're going to get it out of the city of Dagon, and they're going to take it and ship it among another clan in the Philistines. And Well, it's there, and then all types of things begin to break out. All the people in the city begin to have tumors on their faces and on their bodies and everywhere. And they are literally beginning to, what, just panic because of the ark of the covenant. 
I mean, a city, Shiloh, has been destroyed. The Philistines are being destroyed. Uh, Dagon has bowed uh, before the Ark of the Covenant. And not only that, you also have uh, this other city uh, encapsulated by the Philistines. They're breaking out in tumors, and it's a very bad thing. And they decide it is time to send this thing back home. Well, how are we going to do it? And so they begin to take some gold idols, and they they, uh, put it on a cart, and they literally take two uh, cows that have calved, and they decide if, 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 in fact, this is of God, it's going to find its way back home. And that's what they do. They take two cows. They have calves over here who have not been weaned yet. And they decide they're either going to go over here or they're going to go somewhere else or they're going to go exactly where God has them to go. And so they have this cart and literally those things take off and they head all the way back to the people. And even then, what happens is, is they begin, the, the Israelite people began to praise God as it came. And then a handful of those goofballs, about 70 of them, decide, let's open the ark of the covenant. Let's look inside of it. And at that moment, 70 of them were, were dead. And the reason why is because the Lord had instructed the nation of Israel in Numbers 4, Numbers 7, in Exodus uh, as well, 25, I believe, do not open the Ark of the Covenant. It was to be veiled. Do not touch it. It's a holy thing. And the bottom line is a symbol of God's presence. And so David says, that is what we need back among our people, is the presence of God residing, the Shekinah of God in our midst. Does that make sense? Have I thoroughly covered that? The presence of the Lord is found in this covenant box of Achaia wood, which is why I provided the Achaia tree on our slides tonight, because it is a symbol of who God is, and it is a symbol of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the residing place of God. And it says, and on it is the name of the Lord Almighty. It is the exact same phrase, Yahweh, that he says of Moses, who should I tell the people that you are? And he says to them, I am who I am, meaning you cannot define me. I am not confined to a place, a person, a time. I'm not even confined to a box. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Meaning this, folks, God is all that he is, and he does not need you or me to what speculate, even have an opinion about him or his presence because we cannot, will not ever define God. And so let me just go ahead and give you one clue for all of you big burly men out there who have said this in your lifetime. I am good with men upstairs. God is not a man, and he is not upstairs. God is Yahweh, the holy, perfect, omniscient, powerful God who resides among his people in this text, the nation of Israel. And get this, none of the guys that are 40 years and under in the nation of Israel have ever seen it. And so the question then, how in the world does David know that he needs to go get the Ark of the Covenant and put it back in its place? Well, it's mere speculation. You don't see anything in your Bible that would suggest what it was that told him. But he had a mentor and a guy named Samuel. And maybe Samuel, as a result of seeing God work in his days and knowing about the Ark of the Covenant, said throughout his days, you ought to see the results of the Ark of the Covenant and how God works through this box. And whatever it was, they decided that they were going to bring it back. And so look at verse 3. They set the Ark of God on a new cart. Now, what's interesting is, is who else did that? 
the Philistines when they sent it back. Did you know that? They put it on a cart. And so they think, well, the Philistines did it. I guess we can do it. And so they develop a new cart, a new way of transporting this, which absolutely is against God's standard of transporting the Ark of the Covenant. God said in Numbers, uh, in Exodus 25, Numbers 4, Numbers 7, that it was to be what, covered, that it had gold rings in which you would stick poles through and that you would cover it, that you were not to touch it, not to see it. But what they do is they put it on a new cart, and they brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And they are literally having this party. Like, and it is an amazing thing. It is what you and I would know as an inauguration. You got me? I mean, it is the inauguration of the king of Israel, David, who is on his rightful throne. It is where God placed him, and he is bringing among the Ark of the Covenant into the city, and you and I would be what? We would love to be spectators along this event. We would love to be on the sidelines watching and, and cheering for this king, of, this king called David, right? And we would, we would love to see that. Why? Because at this point... It's a hope that's been realized for the nation. If you remember back, you have the Abrahamic covenant, right? I mean, the Abrahamic covenant was literally this. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to give you a land. Well, get this. All of this is beginning to happen in fruition, and they really haven't seen it in all that much. I mean, you had Moses, and you had... Uh, the conquest of the promised land, but then after they get into the promised land, well, they, they decide, you know, we're going to come up with a period of judges and we're going to rule that way. That didn't work out for them, so they decide to ask God for a king. They get the very first king, and Saul, who was an evil, corrupt man, did not follow the instructions of the Lord. And guess what? That didn't work out for him. And so here it is, King David's on his throne, and he is bringing back to them the most prominent figure, the, the most prominent thing in the life of the nation of Israel at this time, which is the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah of God, and saying, this is the way we're going to do it. And at that point in time, this is a really, really important thing because it's a reminder of what? God's covenant among the people. It's a reminder of how good God is. And they, see, they see that their hope has been realized, that the king is on his throne, and ultimately God is going to be praised. And then look what happens, because this is a turning point in the event of this story, the life of this story, that's probably going to confuse every one of us here. Here it goes. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. The Bible says that you're not to touch it. And you go, well, what, what, wait a second. The oxen stumbled. Like, I mean, and that's my thought. Like, as I was reading through this, I'm like, the oxen stumbled. He, I mean, and it's almost like Uzzah thought that it would be better for him to reach out and touch it and grab it than for it to hit the threshing floor. But look what happened. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. And so here it is. The celebration comes to a halt, would you say? I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, you've got all these people playing instruments. You've got the king of Israel parading with all these other people. And then it all just comes to a screeching halt there. And everybody is wondering what in the world happened. Uzzah is dead. Now, the crazy thing is, is who in the world is Uzzah? Well, Uzzah is the very guy 
who the Ark of the Covenant has dwelt in his father's house for many, many, many years. And it's almost as if you get the impression or the appearance that Uzzah had become all too familiar with that covenant box. That he actually had become a little bit comfortable with just residing in the presence of God. It was almost as if he, in some ways, forgot how important the presence of God was in someone's life. It was almost as if he had lost some respect for that covenant box. Because what he should have done as they're parading through the town, as they're getting ready to put the Ark of the Covenant in the capital of Jerusalem, in the tent that David had repaired, which we read about in Psalm 132. Lord, I want your presence to come. I'm preparing. He said, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to slumber. I'm going to get up morning and day, and I'm going to stay up even into the night to prepare a place. And he goes, I've got a place And it was as if, as they take off to put the Ark of the Covenant in the tent, in the rightful place, in the city of Jerusalem, that one of those guys, Uzzah, his brother, uh, would have been uh, maybe a good suggestion since he's been there. Uh, Any of those other guys could have stepped up um, from the priestly tribe of the Levites and said, wait a second, wait a second. Do you remember? Do you remember what God said here? Do you remember exactly what? Okay, Exodus 25. Okay, Numbers 4, Numbers 7. You're not to touch of it. It's to be veiled. Why is this thing not covered? Why is it on a cart? We're not to touch it. It should have poles. We should be walking. We we can't even look on it. We can't look in it. It is the what? dwelling place of God. If you and I understand what he is saying here, it is as if he sees that as what? Looking at the Shekinah or the face of God. And John said in 118, no one has ever seen what? The Father at any time. We know that from our heaven series. And what you see here is Uzziah reaches out and it's as if he touches the presence of God. And in that moment, he is consumed. And the problem is not that the box fell. It is almost as if the, the, the box was meant to fall because it was going to what? Bring about the fact that they were irreverent. It was the very fact that they had not taken the time to care for the Ark of the Covenant like God had wanted them to. Now you look up and you, and you go, wow, that, I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy. And you and I, like you read this and maybe you think, okay, this is a good chance for maybe repentance. I mean, because, I mean, honestly, let's just talk about us for like a second. Let's take a time out. Like, let's just talk about us. How many of you tonight, and you don't have to raise your hands. I just want to ask a question, okay? And I don't want you to be mad at me. I just want to ask some honest questions. How many of you brought your Bibles in preparation for the word of the Lord? How many of you came with anticipation of singing and entering in the glory of the Lord? How many of you honestly, like me, like I mean like me, I'll, I'll be honest, approach our gatherings as if it is some mundane task that we have to do? That it's just something that is on our schedule and we would be better for going. And we have somehow forgotten within the church, and I believe wholeheartedly, listen to me, wholeheartedly, that we have never truly understood completely in this church what it looks like to come before the Lord. 
And I'm not talking about reverence in terms of nice clothes. I'm talking in terms of reverence and posture of a heart. Because ultimately, I think that you are perfectly fine to worship in shorts and a t-shirt. I wish I was wearing that right now. But I'm talking about how often do we posture ourselves, position ourselves as if we really anticipate and really want to hear from the Lord. Like, listen, contemplate that question. Because ultimately, that's the greatest question that you and I have to answer tonight. Did we honestly, fervently come into this anticipating God to do something big? How often did you pray for it this week? I'll confess, very little for me. And that's troubling. And the reason why is, is because God was making a point that even as they paraded, even as they sang, even as they raised their hands, even as they jumped around at their favorite lyrics, he says, God is not to be mocked. And he kills a guy to make a point. And here's the bottom line. God cares more about our worship, not in the sense that we parade ourselves around, not the sense that we raise our hands or we don't raise our hands, but that our hearts are right in all of those things. Is God okay with us raising our hands? Absolutely. There are some of you conservative Baptists in here that you're like, oh no, God would, no, listen, everything I see in the Bible says it's perfectly biblical, okay? But the bottom line is, is that doesn't make somebody spiritual just because they impress you in their worship. There are many times that you've walked out of church going, I wish I could have what they have. Worship's not a feeling. Worship is not a, a, an event that you and I are entertained by. Worship is a posture of our heart positioning ourselves between or before a holy God, reminding ourselves of the covenant promise of his great sacrifice on the cross in which he gave his life, his son, his blood for us and atoning for our, what? Filthy, nasty, arrogant, prideful, conditioned hearts. And we approach them as if that was something that we just did to get us to a place called heaven. Well, I would think that David would what? He would go, oh, man, I've missed it. I've missed it. Well, look what he does. This is his response. And I love David for this. I really do. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. He is indignant towards God. Like, he's not mad because, like, hey, man, you ruined my party. Hey, you know. I mean, he's mad because he's like, who, who are you to challenge me as a king. I mean, I'm trying to do something good for you. Do you understand that? Like He's like, I am trying to bring a righteous act before you. I am trying to do something that I have never seen, that the people my age have never seen. God, you haven't been among the people of Israel. They've forgotten about you. They've forsaken you. Lord, they're not caring about you. And then I do something great, and then we miss one thing, and boom, ooze is dead. Now, what are you doing? And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah, which literally means an outbreak towards Uzzah. Basically a grease spot. And if you pass by it, you'll know it was Uzzah's place. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? That even in his outrage, he said, Wow, he may kill me too. 
And honestly, he's probably right in thinking that, that the Lord's anger burned so great that even he could lose his life. And the bottom line was this, was David sincere in his worship? I believe so, but he was sincerely wrong. And the reason why is the worship did not line up with the word. And so the question then becomes, well, what should we do? Because there's obviously people all around us that are very, very sincere in their worship. But the question is not, are you sincere in your worship? Are you sincere in your worship to the God who says, I am who I am, the God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens and the earth? It is not simply about us being spiritual people. It is not simply about us having a relationship with the man upstairs. It's not about us being good with God, like somehow, yeah, I'm good. I have my own thought process on this. I've kind of come up, as I was reading an article this week, I've kind of come up with my own organized philosophical sort of religion. It doesn't matter if you have your own sort of religion. If your sort of religion, even in your most zealous days, is wrong, it's wrong. And in this point, he goes, it's wrong. And so in verse 10, David decides something really big as a king. And it's one of his decisions that he had to really sleep on. He decided that he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of of obed Edom, the Gittite, for three months, which, by the way, was a Kohathite. And the Kohathites are the ones that had to, uh, they had to transport the, the temple. They were part of the Levitical tribe, but they were Kohathites. And, and so Obed-Edom is a Kohathite, and he, he allows the Ark of the Covenant to come to his house. And then look what happens. It's, it's pretty ironic. I mean, look what happens. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. And so, like, he has the Ark of the Covenant sitting in his living room. Like, what does that look like? Uh, No, son, we're not going to watch TV tonight. Let's just stare at the Ark of the Covenant, okay? It doesn't matter the Brady Bunch is on. It doesn't. We're going to stare at the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to worship the Lord tonight. Like, like you, you and I would be blown away to the Ark of the Covenant being in your living room. And literally, here it is. Obed Edom literally has this thing in his living room, and the Lord pours out His blessings on him and his household. And this is as if for three months, God uses this simple man, Obed Edom. And his obedience to care for, what? The Ark of the Covenant to remind the nation and even this king that God is indeed good. That just because he had to pour out his wrath on Uzzah because of his lack of discretion and his lack of what? Adhering to the word of God, that he was still good. And that he had a plan and he had a purpose and that he really did want to bless this nation. Because after all, isn't that the covenant plan? Isn't that the covenant nation uh, that he had for this place called Israel, this people called Israel? It's the same thing if you remember in Exodus chapter 4, Moses did not circumcise his firstborn son and and, uh, Zipporah, his wife, she was kind of, she was a Gentile woman, and I'm sure she's going, whoa, 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 you're about to do what to our son? I don't think so. And so he had no fear of a guy named Pharaoh, but he did fear what? His wife, Zipporah. Sounds like a lot of men I know, right? And the bottom line is this, is that the Lord almost killed him as he's going to Pharaoh. 
And the reason why is because he was zealous to free the people. But he was also disobedient in one simple area of his life. And that is Uzzah. That is the story here. And that is not only Uzzah, but it's ultimately what? Goes to David. Because basically, if it happens under the kingship of David, then it's going to come back to what? David. And so look what happens. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. Now can you, be, can you imagine being David? Here it is. You have paraded the Ark of the Covenant on a cart through a city. God kills one of the Kohathites, Uzzah, who has literally seen the Ark of the Covenant in his presence almost all his life. He's dead. You decide, I'm angry with the Lord. I can't have the Ark of the Covenant in the city because obviously I don't know what to do with it. Let's just pawn it off on Obed-Edom. And then all you hear about is people after people after people coming to you saying, oh, Lord has poured out all his blessings on Obed-Edom. Now, could you imagine being a confused man at that point? Wait a second. He's getting blessed and we were a curse. What is it? And it was as if in that moment that God began to speak to David. And that he began to gently, what? Remind him of his word, of his decrees, and of his, his plans. Isn't that the, the writer of Hebrews, what? No discipline seems pleasant at the time. But isn't it that the Lord disciplines those that he loves? Yes? That he chastens us? Like oftentimes in our lives, we hate when things go wrong. But have we ever sat back and just looked? And I think as Pastor Dick talked about a couple of years ago, we oftentimes ask the question, why? And maybe we should begin to ponder and ask the question of what? Like, God, what do you want to do here? And it was in, in this moment that David began to posture himself before the Lord, and he decided, Lord, what? I've been working hard. I've been diligently preparing a place. I've got a tent set up. You are going to be housed in the city of David among your people in Jerusalem. We want you. We want to worship you. What went wrong? What do I need to do? And then it said this. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Like, do you see this? It was like, it almost looked like the same thing. But it was as if it's six steps, he said, it's going to have to change. And the only thing that changed was the way that they treated the Ark of the Covenant. It was as if they approached it this time with not just sincerity, but true worshiper. That they approached it as if it was truly what, the indwelling of God. They approached it with care they approached it with compassion. They approached it with praise and adoration. And they approached it with consecration. It was as if they made themselves right before they entered into the presence of God. And they began to go to the city. And they are praising God. They are dancing the Lord with all his might. And one interesting thing there, it says that David was dancing before the Lord wearing a fine what linen ephod. And you may be wondering, okay, awesome, he's wearing an ephod. What is that? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not robes. 
Every king that you and I know or have ever probably heard of in a processional like this is going to sit on his throne and he's going to allow people to look upon him. But what he does in this moment, I think is an an exceptional thing. And I think why God found such favor on a man named David. And he took himself and he positioned himself not as king, but as a priest. And he is wearing the exact same thing as the priestly tribe of the Levites and Ephod. A fine linen dressed in white. And he became literally nothing so that he could live among the people. Now you tell me, is David what? The prototype of a true antitype who what? Made himself nothing to become something among the people? That was the heart of David as he becomes a servant. He takes off his royal robes. He decides, I'm not, uh, I'm not sovereign. And let me tell you something. An American president doesn't do this. Like, when's the last time you saw a president just bow before Congress and go, we have it all wrong? When's the last time that our city officials have done this? And look, we keep electing people based off of how long we've known them. I don't want to get into politics, but what I'm saying is, is I believe wholeheartedly that we need to evaluate our lives. And we need to evaluate the standards in which we live. And we need to literally evaluate how casually we approach this idea of loving and living for God. Because oftentimes what we do is we become religious zealots. We show up faithfully week in and week out. And we wonder why God seems absent from our lives. We ask the question, God, why don't you hear our prayers? God, why aren't you responding in my life the way that I think you should? And the bottom line is, is that you and I are approaching him wrong. It's as if we believe that simply because we're churchgoers, that we're faithful in serving that we've given of our time and of our talents, that we do not have to posture or position ourselves before a holy God still. And we do. And the reason why, I think, is even greater than what it was for David in that day, because David had not seen the salvation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He lives in the city of David. He is, what, the king of the city of David. His name is David, and what? He is the lineage of, what, the Messiah, the one to come from the city of David, from the lens of David, who would be called the son of David. And so, like, does that resonate with you? Like, I don't want this to be a beatdown session. I want this to be, like, an, just an awakening, like, for us as people, realizing what he has done. And then it says, verse 15, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets... As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from window, and when she saw the king, saw King David leaping and dancing for the Lord, she what? Despised him in her heart. Isn't that something? His wife is watching, and she believes who is this king who has just made himself like one of the servants, who is parading himself around in an ephod when he should be wearing robes. And get, get this, like it, 
Is that something new from a king's daughter? Everything's probably been fed to her whole, her whole life. L- listen to me. Does she need God? No, because she is her own God. And that is the same idea of any of us who believe that just because we've become good people or just because our parents were pastors or deacons or they serve in the church that somehow we deserve the righteousness of God. And look, God didn't owe her anything. And David owed his God everything. And so look what happens. They brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place and sent inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Burnt offerings means total devotion. That's what that offering meant. Fellowship offering, it would have been a peace offering, basically, that you're clean before the Lord. And they come before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And what you see here is this. God has given this nation a place in which to reside, a king who would be faithful, a priestly tribe who would now, what, reinstitute sacrifices for the first time in probably, probably 70 years, in which the nation had never seen, David had never seen, all of his cohorts that were 40 years and less had definitely never seen. And so basically, here's what you have. You have a people who finally see that once everything's in place, the king's in place, the place of worship's in place, God is in place in the rightful place in the tent, nothing spectacular, but he resides among his people, then God begins to pour out his blessings upon the nation and you see that in the time of King David, it is literally the greatest time that the nation of Israel has ever seen. And even to this day, it is still the greatest time. All Israelites long for the day that their Messiah comes and what? Puts them back in the proper place in the reign and the rule of David. And guess what? They've missed the Messiah and which has done that because he didn't do it the way that Michael, the daughter of Saul, thought it should be done. And that's what happens. <laughs> and then look what happens. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. And you go, fantastic. And I guarantee you Mark did not circle or underline this text at all. Period. But that there is a huge statement. Because it was almost as if what that cake of dates and raisins symbolized were seats. And it was as if David was saying, go to your homes, reproduce, enjoy what God has given us. The covenant in which we remember in Genesis 12. A nation, a people, and a place has been what? Put in place. God's presence is with us. He resides among his people, and this is going to be the most productive time of all of our life. And they truly are excited about it because they have never seen this in all their day. It is the very thing that Moses longed for. It was the very thing that Joshua would have loved to see in all of his fullness. It's the very thing that even Solomon never really saw because what? He wasn't obedient completely to the Lord. But it was something that the nation of Israel saw under David's reign. And the bottom line is this. It's because he reminded the people, after a chastening and a discipline from the Lord, that we've got to return to the main thing. And you may be here and you may go, awesome. 
what does that mean for us? And to be very honest with you, I came in and I go, Lord, I don't know exactly what this means for us. But I, I, do, I do believe that there's a handful of things. So let me just share a couple with you as we walk out of this place. <clears throat> One, if you have been at Stone Point for any amount of time, there is without any question that you can see that God's done an amazing work here. Would you agree? Amen? With that said, I want you to also know that even among God's greatest blessings, it's very easy to come to a point of casualness that we almost believe that there's going to be someone else that picks up our leg of the race, that fulfills our place of service, that reaches this person over here and whom we can't reach. And then almost in some ways, we forget to approach the idea of worship with his church, with his people, as a sacred thing in which he has provided for the body of Christ. I think all of us in, in this room, including myself, could identify with that. That somehow, some way, we've approached God pretty casually in our worship and what we believe, even though he's doing great work, things in this church, we've done that pretty casually. The second thing is, is this, is that as we grow, as we, as we continue to, to see God do things, it means that in order to continue to see those things, that he has to be the precedence of what we do. Like, we don't do this, we don't continue to, to do any of these things for our own glory. And I can easily put myself on a pedestal or believe that somehow, some way, God has allowed me uh, in whatever talents, gifts, abilities he's had, or even our leadership team, that he has some way used us and to, to get this thing going. And I'll just tell you, it is not a work of men. It's not a work of us at all. But the bottom line is, is that when you believe that it is a work of a particular person or someone's abilities, then what happens is, is you begin to idolize in that moment as if, if they were gone, this thing would fall apart. And I've had many people over the course of the last few years approach me and say, man, what happens to this thing as you go? And I just want you to know, listen, the Lord is what holds this thing together. And if you have idolized any single person in our church, on our team, if you believe for any reason that this is a result of any mere man, please repent. Please seek the Lord. And please just ask him to continue to lead in spite of us men. Because there would be another hundred people that probably don't go to Stone Point anymore who would say that we are failures as men, okay? And so if you need somebody, I'm sure there's people around, okay? But the bottom line is this. You and I just have to remember that God is on his throne and that he has blessed our church because he is good and he is gracious. And I personally do not want to see God quit pouring out his blessings on our church and on, hey, on our people in this community, in this county, as a result of my casualness to the gospel. And I'll tell you that if the church becomes what I have been in times of my own personal walk, we're in trouble. And so God's calling me to a ferventness that I need you as a church to hold me accountable to. And I even shared with our team a few weeks ago that ministry is a war. And there is a lot going on in our town, in our city. And we oftentimes, we turn a blind eye towards it because we just think, oh, this is how it's always been. And listen, God did not call us here for these purposes, for these times, to be a part of something that's always been this way. 
He's called us to be a part of change, right? Amen? And so if you believe that, then my, my call to you is this. Be a part of what God's doing. Don't be a mere spectator that's angry or mad because the services are full when you walk in. Really? Isn't it good that God has blessed our church? And so we just pray that God would continue to pour that out upon his people in spite of who? Me, in spite of you. Amen? Amen. And then the last thing is this. This week, I'm going to put a call on our church that I've never done, and I'm going to call you out, and you may be upset. I'm sorry. I love you. I'll, I'll tell you that before I say it. I love you. There are many people that in the course of walking in this thing that we want opinions. And let me explain something to you. There are a lot of hard decisions at Stone Point, okay? Lots. Most of which I don't know the answer to. Most of which when you ask, I give you some vague, casual answer. And the reason why is because I really don't want you to see how dumb I am, okay? We have building challenges. We are right now, we're looking for lots of different options. We're looking possibly, can we buy and expand this building? Can we buy land and build somewhere else? What do we do in our Edgewood campus? We don't really know. We believe that God wants us to go. We just don't know exactly what that looks like right now. We believe that we're to go. We believe that wholeheartedly. And so we've got all of those different things going on. With that said, too, we also see all this life change. We see people coming. We also do see people leaving because they can't find a parking spot, and they're frustrated that there are people that could possibly be sitting in their seat and that they were here from the beginning. And so we just go, okay, what do we do with all that? And here's all I know to do. Like, can, can you hear me in this church? Pray and seek the Lord. And we have so many decisions to make. Like it really does. It, it almost baffles me that we would have 700 or 800 people on a weekend and we have 25 at our prayer service. And about a couple of months, somebody approached me with that and they said, well, how many people do you have at your prayer service? And it really just, it really kind of pained me a little bit. And the reason why is because it reminds me of this text. It's as if we've almost forgotten where the strength of this church comes from. And so I'm just pleading, like I'm really pleading. This Thursday is our prayer night, and we'll have a Lord's Supper together, and we're, um, we're going to f- just fellowship together. We'll sing a few songs together. But I'm telling you, we have decisions right now in which I don't know the answer to, and we've been praying for them, and it's just not clear. But here's one thing I do know. If we will put him chiefly in charge on the throne, if we will, what, desire him, and there's a kind of presence of the Lord in our lives, and we'll allow him to guide us, it will work out. A-okay. And I don't want your building, and trust me, you don't want mine. I want what God wants for his church. And if that means it's no building, then that's okay too. Because I'm pretty sure that God has given us all we need right here to gather as people. It's not real simple. I mean, it's not real fancy. It's pretty simple. It's not real pretty. It's pretty ugly. It's not real big. It seems pretty crowded and small. But let me ask you a question. If you come back to this text and you realize that the main thing is the presence of the Lord in this place, do all those other things really matter? And so that's my prayer. Would you leave today and this time after singing a song together and would you, like me, maybe approach the Lord in repentance in some areas that we have really taken control? Number two, would you begin to plead on behalf of the people in this community who still don't have a relationship with Jesus? Would you continue to sacrifice your time and your talent and your resources so that more could come to be a part of his kingdom? 
all in realizing that you're not doing it for me, you're not doing it for our staff, you're not doing it for our church, you're doing it for the Lord. And what does he say? Do all things, what, for the Lord and not for men, Galatians 1. Amen? May I pray for us, and I pray that you are blessed as you leave tonight, um, because God is indeed good. Amen? Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight, and I thank you, Father, that, Lord, you were true to the nation of Israel. That, Father, that you, you gave your commands. You set the precedence of what you want in your word. And, Father, you made it clear to a nation, to a people, to a capital, to a military stronghold in the nation of Israel, that all you wanted from them was obedience. And the position of their heart. And Father, I would say, just like us, even as a nation, as a community, a county of people, we are so prone to, to leave the God that we love. And Father, I'll confess that there are many times, many evenings, many mornings that I get up and I preach a sermon. And I'll count it as good if I get a few handshakes, a few hugs, and a pat on the back. Father, ultimately, I don't want the approval of men. I just want you to be pleased in this place. God, I just want you... I want you to believe that the worship that resonates out of this metal building in this little town in Podunk, America. is true. And that it resembles you. And that it comes from people who realize that life on our own, doing it our way, just doesn't work. Father, I pray that you just break our hearts for the things that break God's. Father, help us to see people differently than what we see them now. Father, help us to approach ministry differently than what we, we do now. And Lord, help us to not hide behind our own arrogance. Help us not to hide behind the belief or the fact that I was raised, I was born and bred here. But Lord, like David, may we just remove our royal robes and would we just place ourselves before you as servants of the Most High God, imitating not Paul, but Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Not to have equality with God as something to be grasped, but he considered himself nothing. He became obedient even to death on the cross. May that be our heart. May that be our desire. And uh, may we reflect you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.